Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to That Spooky early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Apple Podcasts. You're listening to a Morbid Network podcast. This episode is brought to you in part by June's Journey. Picture it, the glamour of the roaring 20s wrapped in a mystery that only you can solve. Dive into June Parker's captivating quest to uncover scandalous family secrets. With your keen eye for detail, find hidden clues and solve mind-boggling puzzles. It's all about observation, intrigue, and drama. But beware, each clue leads deeper into a thrilling storyline filled with danger and romance. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Your adventure awaits. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Spooky. I'm Johnny. And I'm Tyler. And this is a weekly podcast that's so, so into voguing, voguing right, right now. Yeah. I mean, I share a birthday with Vanessa Hudgens. Oh my god, you do. It's written in the stars. Yeah. So before we get into two minutes of Drag Race this week, a little bit of Drag Race Thailand news. Okay. Spoiler alert, the winner of season one, Natalia Pliakam, is running for Thai Congress. Oh, work. Yeah, so they've recently announced that they're going to be running for Congress to raise awareness and debate LGBTQIA issues. They're hoping to win a seat for the Thai local party, and basically their whole campaign is based around superheroes. It's called We Are Hero. So I'm not sure the politics of the whole thing, but essentially posters from their campaign of them standing against like cityscapes looking like superheroes went viral this past weekend. Okay, cool. Leave it to a drag queen to start with a photo shoot. I know, right? It's so extra. <laughs> it's so fierce. You should look it up. And if anything, you should just watch Drag Race Thailand season season one it's so good so speaking of drag race let's do two minutes of it so we just had all stars four episode nine high points low points so high point for me was monet whipping out manila's lipstick from her titty because everybody on social media for the past week have given naomi and latrice such a hard time over Mm -hmm. the elimination of manila it was just nice to see that naomi wasn't the only one playing a quote-unquote shady game and getting all the shit for it it's like this is what the game is about at this point you just get rid of the strongest person it sucked to see manila go but it was nice to see latrice stay so that was my high point 
How about you? I would say that my high point was probably the kitty cat runway. I think the true winner was Michelle Visage. Even though she was a judge, I really liked the whole like Julie Newmar Catwoman vibe that she had going on. It was very that. Yeah, she like really seamlessly incorporated glasses to kind of look like the Catwoman mask. I was living for it. She would have been in the top if she were up there on the stage. Right. Was she a two or was she a shoot? Uh, I'd probably say like a halfway point in between the two. And of course, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but major props to Naomi Smalls for pulling it out on the runway. I loved a high fashion take on a crazy cat lady with like balls of yarn in your hair. I love a distressed yarn moment. It was just fun. It was cute and it was cool because she wasn't trying to be a cat, which actually brings me to my low point. What the fuck was Monet wearing on that goddamn runway? Well, it was a Pink Panther homage, but the deal is, if you watch really closely, the really kind of, like, weird thing about it is that she doesn't have a nose painted on for the first, like, three quarters of the time that she's on the runway, and then at the very end, it's almost as if she was like, oh, shit, that's what I missed. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that didn't save it for me. It was bust. No dust, just bust. Okay. I would have to say that Milo point was probably just like the weird energy that was there throughout the entire episode. Yeah, yeah. it was. It just felt low energy. It, like when they were getting ready for the challenge, I felt like I was watching Queens in a waiting room. Yeah. You know, like it felt like the camera shouldn't have been on. It was a little too cinema verite, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. And now that Latrice is gone, it just kind of doesn't give me a lot of hope for that final episode. I like all of the queens that made it to the final four but none of them are really the queens that I looked at and went, oh shit, they're going to be in the top for this season. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Like Latrice and Manila being gone at this point just makes it feel like this competition is almost a bit of a moot point. A little bit. It's like All-Stars 4 burned bright and then it went the way of the lemmings in White Wilderness straight off that cliff into the Arctic Ocean. Yeah, but you know what? We say burn it all to the ground. So hey, burn it all to the ground, mama. So enough about that. Let's talk about Basic Witch. Basic witches, not wanted. Well, according to Marie Claire magazine, they are wanted. So they just put out an article called Witchcraft is Officially a Thing. Are you a basic witch? (laughs) Okay. I know. So it was released on February 7th, 2019. So just recently. And they're essentially saying that four months ago, Sabrina the Teenage Witch was remade and put out on Netflix. And ever since then, everyone's been obsessed with witchcraft. Right. So hashtag witches of Instagram now has like 2 million posts and they say, it's going up. They say that there are a whole bunch of like super witchy Instagram accounts that hundreds of thousands of people are now following. And they basically begin the article by saying, in their words, witches can be influencers too. Duh. Fucking right they can be. And then they really go ham. So they say, and I'm going to quote, if you want in for £19.20 plus delivery, you can order an extra, extra large sage smudge stick to arrive at your door within 20 minutes. Extra, extra large? Yeah, you need some big one for your big ass spirit problems. So they go on to say, incidentally, you can also order crystal eggs, rose quartz, and halite wands said to help heal, encourage romance, and relieve stress. And then they outline the basic witch starter kit. So basic witches, come one, come all, write this down. It may help you in the future. Add these items to your shopping list for maximum sorcerer points. Oh my God. One. 
a sage smudge stick, or Palo Santo, because nobody wants a dirty aura. No. Mm-mm. Number two, your coven. Witches don't ride solo, so you're going to need to recruit Salem to your Sabrina. <laughs> so instead of, like, the T-Squad, we got the covens now. Yeah, I guess they're saying adopt a cat. Three, salt. Don't waste those flakes of Maldon on your supper. Use them to create boundaries and remove negative energy by sprinkling some in the corners of rooms or at your front door. Okay. Four, an old key. The best talisman for manifesting your desires. Don't forget to charge it with your intention. A few chants will do, but add moonlight and smoke for extra oomph before using in spells. Okay, this article sounds like some riggery to buy some shitty-ass, witchy merch from Urban Outfitters. Well, no. No, because they give you the Etsy links. Thank you very much. Oh, okay. And you know what? This kit still has one more item, so you don't know. I shouldn't judge. Yeah, the final piece in this puzzle, five. Amethyst. Loved by mystics in the medieval ages for its calming properties, no basic witch should be seen without it. Get your amethysts here, girls. Yeah, and get your spell for long-lasting love. So, according to this Marie Claire article, this is how you magically bag a hot date on Tinder. What the fuck? Their words, not mine. So, I quote, You need a pinch of allspice, a pinch of dried thyme, five cloves, five drops of rose essential oil, a pestle and a mortar, a char cold disc in a heat proof dish step one blend all of the ingredients using the pestle and the mortar step two light the charcoal disc on a heat proof dish and add the mixture carefully place your swiping finger in the smoke and as you do this chant loud what kind of person you would like to meet is that it no then step three hit tinder with your spellbound finger is that it that's it so you take that magic finger you do some fine ass tendon and you're gonna find you a hottie now here's the problem marie claire's like here become a witch become powerful harness the powers of the universe and find yourself a man. Well, it could be anyone from the spectrum of gender, but essentially, yeah, you're right. They're just saying, hey, you're empowered, but you need someone. Yeah, you're not good enough on your own. You need somebody. Well, you're a basic witch. What else do you expect? Fair enough. Well, that was very insightful. Thanks, Marie Claire. Marie Claire says you're welcome. And now for everybody's favorite segment of the show, obituaries. Okay, actually, yes, but also no. So I learned about this pretty cool artist this week named Susan Hiller. And if anybody's wondering, that's Susan with an S. Not with a Z, but Susan Hiller unfortunately passed away on January 29th, 2019, so this year, at the age of 78. And Susan Hiller was like a super spooky installation and video artist, right? Yeah, for sure. She was a super spooky bitch. So a lot of her work covered things like fairy rings, alien abductions, and the paranormal. She did a lot of video installation work, like footage of young girls with psychokinetic powers. And she also at one point filmed a room with ample speakers playing single accounts of first-hand stories of alien abductions and then she also worked with recordings from soundproof rooms that supposedly picked up voices of the dead so a lot of really cool work unfortunately i hadn't heard of her until she passed away and people started writing about her but i thought that maybe some other people might be interested in checking out her work it seems like it is pretty cool and you know we need to give more props to those female artists out there doing the shit so we're really 
sorry to hear about the loss of Susan Hiller. Yeah, for sure. And if you haven't heard of her, check her out. Really cool person. All right. So just before we get to the main event, have to do some oopsie poopsies. All right. Oopsie poopsie poopsie pie. It's all yours, baby, because I don't got none. Well, thank you, sir. Okay. Well, mine's not so much a correction just as an omission. I just want to say the handcuff man was my longest story on paper to date. It was like 14, 15 pages of just like text. So I accidentally left out one part just at the end and I just want to share it with everybody. Okay. So handcuff man, total asshole, totally full of himself. So Robert Lee Bennett has been arrested for all of this shit. It's like the time of sentencing. He's out on that $300,000 bond where he's basically not allowed to leave the house. Whole deal is he ends up getting sent to prison two weeks earlier than the original date of March 9th, 1992 because he leaves his house. And guess where he gets found? Cruising the same fucking street where he picked up Gary Clapp almost a year earlier. What the fuck? Yeah, so he was looking for more male sex workers in the same area where he had picked up one of the victims that he had just been charged with the attempted murder of. So basically, police found him with some guy leaning in his car window and they were talking and they basically just like grabbed his ass and threw him in jail right away yes bitch yeah so like what a nice fitting end it's like oh yeah baby you think you're tough you think you can just slide one more in there Mm-mm, they're watching you and he was probably doing this because it was like his last hurrah so good thing they actually caught him because who knows what he would have actually done anyway that's my oopsie poopsie for the week nothing huge okay cool thank you for that addition to the story it's actually an interesting little tidbit you're so welcome so spooky gay bullshit Done. Done, finished, it's over. And you're going first this week, right? Yes, I am. So it's been a couple of weeks since I've done something properly spooky. I've done some things spooky adjacent, but I thought that this week I would do a good old haunting. Ooh, I love a haunting. Yes, so this is the San Pedro haunting. Never heard of her. So this is actually one of the most documented hauntings in America with paranormal investigations having taken in place under the guidance of parapsychologist Barry Taff. The year is 1988 and Jackie Hernandez moved into 593 West 11th Street in San Pedro, California in the aftermath of a messy divorce. I don't know the details, but you leave his ass. You move out on your own. That's right. Independent woman, here we go. So Jackie was divorcing and moving, but she was also working multiple jobs, studying part-time, and now she was a single mother of one with another child on the way. So needless to say, Jackie was going through a very tumultuous time when she moved into her new bungalow at 593 West 11th Street. New beginnings. New beginnings. And although times were tough, Jackie did hope that this new home would be the first step towards building a better life for herself and her family. You got a Jackie girl. You got a Jackie girl. And I wish I could say that they lived happily ever after and the end. But girl, we all know that is not the case. That's why we're here. Yes, exactly. In fact, from here on, things just kind of got worse. So almost right away, Jackie noticed strange things happening around the house. At first, Jackie would tell her friends and neighbors that she felt like she was constantly being watched, but it was a new house and she thought she'd adjust, but the feeling never really went away even after a few months. And all to all shade, if your newly divorced friend is telling you that she feels like she's being watched, start paying 
paying attention. Yeah, for sure. There could be some real looky-loos for real. Yeah, you never know. You never know. And okay, so Jackie felt like she was being watched, but as time went by, stranger things started to happen around the house. So objects would disappear and then reappear somewhere else with no explanation. And her son at this point, Jamie, was about two years old, so he really couldn't be capable of doing this stuff. So it's not like she just had a kid walking around, moving shit, making a mess. Yeah, this one was still useless. <laughs> exactly. In addition to things moving around, Jackie would also hear unexplained knocks and noises throughout the house, experience weird cold snaps, and also strange odors, which, ding, 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 probably smelled like sulfur. Just a guess. But Jackie wasn't too bothered. Everything she experienced up until this point could be pretty much explained away. However, one night, Jackie was sitting in her living room watching television when she thought she saw movement out of the corner of her eye. When Jackie turned her head, she saw a pencil holder floating through the air beside her before it all of a sudden came flying at her as if it was thrown by an invisible force. Get out, Jackie girl. You know what, though? This is also 1988. I am in the process of being made. I come out in December. My soul is on the ether. It could be me. Hey. I could be the ghost haunting Jackie in this moment. Oh my god, you're just trying to find your uterus. It's my little baby ghost soul. Who knows? Maybe. Yeah, this could totally be my little utero ghost moment. <laughs> well, then your little utero ghost scared the hell out of Jackie because the next thing she did was run up to her son's room, scoop him out of bed, and then head on over to the neighbors. She explained to them what had happened and waited it out for as long as she could, but ultimately Jackie knew she'd have to return to her bungalow that night. She was like, if that pencil holder so much as looks at me, though. I'm out. <laughs> now, before we go on, it is worth noting that this case is particularly compelling because of the number of people who have claimed to experience activity in the house. And with paranormal encounters, that's not always the T. It's usually like a couple people, but in this case, there's quite a few. One of them being one of Jackie Hernandez's friends and neighbor Susan Castaneda. Susan Castaneda was over one evening for supper when she and Jackie heard a loud bang from another room. When they went to investigate, they found a painting had fallen from the wall and landed in a completely illogical place in the room, suggesting that it was thrown. Did they ever say where it landed in the room? I don't know. Just on the floor far away. More terrifying still, though, Susan witnessed another paranormal encounter while at Jackie's house when a lamp flew seven feet through the air to land and smash at her feet. Fucked up. Yeah, it is pretty fucked up. Susan thought it was pretty fucked up, and Jackie thought it was pretty fucked up. The only reassurance, actually, that Jackie got from any of this was that she knew she wasn't losing her mind because it was happening to other people as well. Sure. And as activity in the home persisted, it only intensified with the birth of Jackie's daughter, Samantha. So one evening while working in the kitchen, Jackie noticed a red ooze running down her wall from the ceiling. Oh no. Perplexed, Jackie elevated herself on top of her washing machine to get a better look at the liquid. And when she did this, she noticed a small hatch in the ceiling that led up into the attic. Oh my god, a blood hatch. Very that. So determining that she'd have to go up into the attic to try and find the source of the liquid, Jackie pushed up on the single hatch and slowly poked her head up into the attic. No. The attic was cold and dark. That that's not cute. No. So as Jackie peered into the darkness, she began to make out a shape. It was round and close to the ground. Focusing on the object, Jackie began to make out details. A nose, a mouth, scruffy white hair, and two beating red eyes staring 
back at her. No, 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 no. When Jackie realized what she was staring at, she gasped, and this disembodied head of an old man lunged towards her. Jackie fell backwards off of the washing machine, landing hard on the kitchen floor. Staring up at the hatch, she saw nothing but darkness. After a moment, she mustered up enough courage to close the hatch, but then she was like, no, 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 never going up there again. She was spooked. Fuck your attic. Yeah, fuck that attic. But unfortunately, after this encounter, the entity began to make its presence known around the house. Same thing, same head? Not just a head, a full body this time. Girl. Yeah, so Jackie began to notice black mists manifesting around her house and then disappearing. At times, she'd wake up in the middle of the night to use the washroom and find this old man standing in the hallway, just staring at her before immediately disappearing into thin air. Nope. So one night, Jackie went to check on her kids, as she often did. She found her newborn, Samantha, asleep in her crib, and her son, Jamie, asleep on the top bunk of his bunk bed. But, cloaked in darkness, Jackie saw the old man sitting cross-legged on the empty bottom bunk, staring at her with those same beating red eyes before once again vanishing. So this weird old ghost dude is just trolling the hell out of her. I can officially confirm this ghost, not me. (laughs) Good, okay, I'm glad we got that out and clear. I would not be pulling that creepy child shit. Like, you know what, fuck with an adult, all you want ghost, but don't go creeping around in a kid's room, that's not a good look. Even if you're not doing anything, it automatically creates a presumption, you know what I mean? Yeah, and it's creepy as fuck. Yeah. Like, no one wants to see that. So, naturally, Jackie Because this entity was now hanging around her kids and hanging around in her kids' room, she really started to fear for her family's safety. So Jackie confided in some friends who were able to recommend that she maybe speak with parapsychologist Barry Taff. So Barry Taff was known for having been on many television programs, which is how her friends found out about him in the first place. And at this point, he had worked some 4,000 cases, including the infamous Doris Bither case, which you can best believe we will cover in a future episode. Totally. So she called in Laffy Taffy. Yeah, and he hooked her up. So when Jackie was able to reach Taff and tell him about her experiences, Taff agreed to do a preliminary interview with her at her home, accompanied by his team of paranormal investigators. He's like, hello, I'm Taffy. I'm the leader. This is Caramel, my audio person. This is Hazelnut. He runs the ghost box. And this is Fudge. She takes the pitches. Fudge is actually my niece. She's doing this for high school credit. Yeah, for sure. Community service. Okay. I was going for school. You're making her like a shoplifter. No, you had to do community service in the high school. That's what they called it. At least I did. Yeah, you did. I didn't. Oh, well, I went to a composite high school, so I guess it's a different experience. You went to a child prison, obviously. (laughs) I mean, yeah. So, okay. On August 9th, 1989, Taff and his team arrived to Jackie's home. So his team consisted of another Barry, Barry Conrad, Gary Byrne, Jeff Wheatcraft, and Brian Moore. So immediately when the team entered Jackie's home, they were met with an overwhelming stench. Like, girl, Febreze. It's the 80s. We don't have Febreze just yet. Did they not have Febreze in the 80s? I don't think so. I don't know. Everyone just smoked inside. Right. In addition to this stench, they also heard 
heard loud bumping sounds coming from up in the attic, which Taff would later describe as sounding like a 200-pound rat running around. Taffy is coming for the ghost, calling him a 200-pound rat. Right? That is some paranormal investigator shade. Yeah, like, where is Taff from? Long Island? Yeah, it's like he walks in and he's like, yeah, I really feel this house occupied by, like, a stupid bitch energy. I don't know. I'm just, the word stupid bitch just keeps coming into my head. I don't know. I just see it. Right? Like a 200 fucking pound rest. I digress. So when Jamie told them about her experience in the attic with the severed head, of course they were like, girl, we gotta go check that out. And at this time, their main objective was basically to find a rational explanation for what Jackie had experienced in the attic. So Gary Byrne and Jeff Wecraft, the team's photographers, went up into the attic with their camera equipment first. When they crawled through the hatch, they immediately felt uneasy as if they were being watched. And what do they mean by find like a logical explanation? Are they like wishing and hoping to find like a homeless man living up in the attic? Or like a bowling ball with a wig maybe? I don't know. Cute. So when up in the dark attic, Weecraft took out his camera to try and capture some images using his flash, but all of a sudden something pulled his camera out of his hands and across the floor. Freaked out, both Gary and Jeff crawled out of the hatch and back into the kitchen. After they composed themselves, they went back into the attic long enough to retrieve their gear where they found Jeff's camera in two pieces on the floor. Whatever was up there did not want to be photographed. It's like I said no pictures. <laughs> right? Exactly. It did not sign a consent form. Yeah, it's like you did not give me a photo release. You did not read my lighting rider. I will not take part in this. Yeah, exactly. It's like Jane Fonda it can only be lit from one side. Was that Jane Fonda? That's Mariah Carey. Oh, that's a lot of divas. Yeah, this ghost is a diva and it's executing its diva right. Right? It's doing what it needs to do. So back to the ghost. Later on that same night, one of the paranormal investigators, Brian Moore, was alone in the kitchen when he heard a low growl from behind him. He turned around and there was nothing there. So this was a lot of weird occurrences for the first night investigating the home. So before leaving, Taff took a sample of the red ooze from the wall to be tested and like also surprised that she just kind of left it there. But I guess if your wall was mysteriously seeping ooze and you thought it maybe was due to a ghost, I guess you might leave it there too? Yeah, staining would not necessarily be a priority at that point. Yeah, true. So the test results would actually show trace amounts of male blood and high iodine and copper content. How do they know the gender of the blood? I don't really know. That's a good question. I'm not a blood doctor. I don't know how it works, but I guess they were able to figure it out. They were like, we knew it was dick blood. Totally. <laughs> it's actually worth noting, though, that these scientists remain unnamed, and this is all allegedly according to Taft. So take that how you will. So allegedly they found big dick energy in the blood. Yeah, exactly. So over the next few weeks, Taff stayed in contact with Jackie, and after learning more about her and her history, Taff would begin to conclude that Jackie matched the profile of someone experiencing a poltergeist haunting. So this isn't just no baby ghost, this is a poltergeist, honey. Yeah, it truly is a postergeist. Wait, did I say postergeist? I don't want to be that girl, but you did. Well, there's my first oopsie poopsie of the week, I guess. There you go. Better get it now before next week. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so she was experiencing a poltergeist. Taff 
Taft said that because she had suffered abuse in her past relationship, was under high levels of stress, and developed a negative outlook on the world, this fueled the poltergeist. And furthermore, Taft determined that Jackie herself had RSPK, which is recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis, making her the perfect agent for a poltergeist to feed off of. And what's he going to say next? Like, I recommend that you smile more. (laughs) Exactly, right? Oh, yeah, Jackie, it's just your negative ass attitude. Yeah, Jackie, it's just because you can't control your emotions that all of this is happening to you. Everyone would just like you a little bit more if you just weren't so bitchy. Right? That's it. Like, I don't know. That explanation sounds like some misogynistic bullshit to me. But the RSPK thing, the being psychokinesis, kind of cool. Yeah, respect. So fast forwarding three weeks on August 28th, 1989, Jackie called Taft completely hysterical. She described how objects were being thrown aggressively around her house. And as she tried to retrieve and pick up the scattered items, Jackie was attacked by invisible hands that pinned her down until she was unable to breathe. So sound the alarm. Hours later, Taff and his team arrived once again to Jackie's home. Burn and Wheatcraft, just like before, enter the attic. Immediately, orbs of light began to appear without a notable source, accompanied by sounds of snapping fingers. Oh, this ghost was like Zed snapping at it. It was like, mm-mm, honey. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was like, get out. Get your ass out. I did not invite you into my space. <laughs> and until I invite you into my space, you are not welcome, sir. Sweetie. Sweetie. I wasn't talking to you, sweetie. Yeah, this ghost got the sass. Bitch, I will break your fucking camera again. I swear to Satan. Yeah, the poltergeist vary that. Whether you hydrate to live or live to hydrate, Liquid IV quenches your thirst faster than water alone. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness, all in a single sugar-free stick. Liquid IV is perfect for daily use before a workout, when you feel run down, after a long night out, or on long flights. Basically, anytime you need a pick-me-up, however you hydrate. Grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free in bulk, nationwide at Costco or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code WONDERY at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code WONDERY at liquidiv.com. You got a dead body, Inspector. I may be able to help with that. This winter, all your favorite detectives are streaming on BritBox. Don't miss exclusive new seasons of Death in Paradise. There must be something we've missed. Vera. It wasn't an accident, was it, love? Father Brown. What did he look like? And more. Once you start investigating, you won't want to stop. We're done when I say we're done. Stream your favorite detectives only on BritBox. Start a free trial at BritBox.com. So when they were reporting seeing these orbs and hearing the snapping sound, Jackie got pretty concerned, so she asked them to return to the kitchen. When Wheatcraft made his way towards the attic hatch, he screamed and immediately began to panic. Byrne turned in the direction of Wheatcraft and took a picture using the flash to illuminate the scene in order to be able to see what was happening. To his horror, he saw that somehow a tight piece of clothesline had become wrapped around Wheatcraft's throat, pinning him against a wooden 
beam hanging from a single nail. Jeff was unable to breathe and was unable to set himself free. Thankfully, though, Byrne was able to reach Wheatcraft and rescue him in time. And once loose, both of them fled the attic. There is actual footage and photographic evidence of this event, which we will post on Instagram just so that people can see it. Shit. Mm-hmm. So Wheatcraft was understandably super freaked out and wanted to leave immediately, and the team followed suit. And this would actually be the last time they'd enter the property on San Pedro. They're like, fuck this Quaker Oats looking ghost. I am out of here. Yeah, they GTFO'd. So the following weeks, activity continued. And in fact, it increased in both frequency and severity. So finally, Jackie Hernandez had enough. So she decided to get out of the house and she moved 380 miles north in September 1989 to a trailer park in Weldon, California. Freed of the house and the poltergeist, Jackie began to relax, feeling that she had escaped the ordeal, but her tranquility would not last for long. In April 1990, she started hearing scratching sounds coming from the storage shed outside, followed by the unexplained appearance of the same orbs of light that she had experienced in her attic in San Pedro. The activity had returned as Jackie began to experience strange happenings once again, which quickly escalated into her daughter Samantha's bedclothes being set aflame shortly after Jackie witnessed a black mist in the hallway. Girl! Yep. Uh, Tina Lawler, who was a neighbor and a teenager who often babysat for Jackie, actually made remarks that the burns in Samantha's bedclothes looked like that of a face. And there is also photo evidence of these burns, which we'll post on Instagram. This poltergeist is a stunt queen. Bury that. And like before, these occurrences were also witnessed by her nearby neighbors. So they would see orbs. They would see figures in the windows of her trailer. Just all that kind of spooky shit. They're like, we're so glad the haunted woman moved into our neighborhood. Exactly. Two of her neighbors, Jim and Janice Sorbet, were helping Jackie move a TV into her trailer because like this is 1990 and TVs were heavy AF. But while moving the TV, they actually saw the reflection of that same old man in the screen of the television. Oh. Yeah, so they got super freaked out and it was clear that the entity had returned. So Jackie was super upset and once again reached out to Taff, who returned to Jackie's aid. Come on, Taffy. Yeah, Taffy's back. So Taffy and Jackie are chit-chatting and then Jackie decides, you know what, I've had enough. Let's do a seance. Let's get this Ouija board on the go and try and make contact with the spirit to find out what it wants. She's like, yeah, you know what we need? a kid's toy. That'll really solve this. Exactly. So she organized a seance. She sent out invites to all her BFFs and they all RSVP'd. In fact, it was actually just Barry Conrad, Jeff Wheatcraft, and Tina Lawler, her babysitter, that agreed to be there during the seance. Taff himself could not be there because he was dealing with some kind of family matters, but he gave the approval to go ahead with the seance. Jackie's like, that's fine. One less party favor to have to put together. (laughs) Exactly. So Barry and Jeff brought a lot of recording equipment to try and capture the seance, but their video recording equipment continued to fail, and so none of the reported activity had been captured on camera. Jackie, Tina, Jeff, and Barry all gathered around the Ouija board and attempted to make contact with the poltergeist plaguing Jackie. Almost immediately, the table in which the Ouija board was on began to violently shake, and the planchette began to move around the board in an alarming speed. So they decided to ask their first question. How many ghosts are here? The board replied, Phantoms fill the skies around you. 
drama. That is a long-ass sentence for a Ouija board. <laughs> right? That is a very literate ghost. Yeah, very that. I guess Tino is, like, in the corner just, like, jotting down everything that the ghost was saying because it was moving so quickly. So they decided to ask another question. Why did you attack Jeff? Referring to the previous incident in the San Pedro bungalow. The board replied, because you are the likeness of my killer. This ghost has obviously never had media training because it doesn't know how to concisely answer a question. Yeah, vague booking all the way. So the next question that they ask is why they chose to haunt and torment Jackie, and it just simply replied, energy. They asked what kind of energy, and the board replied, dead. Basically, it was just feeding off of Jackie. He's like, I want your dead-ass energy. Exactly, right? But I mean, if we go back and we think about the story that we did about Lep Castle with the elemental it, and that was considered to be like a poltergeist-type spirit that it fed off of negative energy. So essentially, because Jackie was going through such a hard time, she did prove to be like the perfect candidate for this poltergeist to latch onto because it could manipulate her easier and feed off of her energy and feed off of her fear. Wow, so even the poltergeist is like, Jackie, you just need to smile more. <laughs> yeah. Right? So the seance is happening. They're asking these questions. But then suddenly the chair in which Jeff was sitting in began to levitate. The chair fell away, but Jeff remained suspended in the air until an invisible force threw him across the room, violently slamming him into the wall. Jeff fell unconscious and for a moment buried Jackie and Tina. We're worried that he might actually be dead. But moments later, Jeff thankfully came to. He couldn't really remember being thrown across the room, but he explained that he had felt an invisible pressure squeezing around his throat, depriving him of air when he began to levitate. In his essays on his website, Barry Taff states that these attacks on Jeff were no coincidence. So Taff doubles down on this misogynistic ghost theory. So he claims that throughout the investigation, Jackie Hernandez began to grow fond of Barry Conrad. He states that the problem for Jackie was that each and every time Barry Conrad came to her home, he was accompanied by Jeff Wheatcraft who is essentially cock-blocking her and inhibiting her from having any kind of romantic pursuit with Barry Conrad. So as stated before, Taff also believes that Jackie is the agent of the poltergeist with recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis. So in stating so, Taff believes that Jackie was subconsciously vetting the poltergeist to attack Jeff as it could feed on the negative emotions she felt towards him. Wow, he's done some major analysis. Yeah, it seems a little shaky to me. It seems a little problematic to me. It's kind of just like, oh, this woman can't handle her emotions, so all hell is breaking loose, literally. So I don't know, like, take that for what you will. Yeah, your problem stems from the fact that you don't smile and you just want to fuck everyone. Yeah, exactly. So, convenient enough, Barry Conrad actually has a book. By the way, Taff has a book about this as well. Barry Conrad's book is called An Unknown Encounter, A True Account of the San Pedro Haunting. And in this, he would report that the poltergeist was believed to be an apparition of a murdered man, either Herman Hendrickson or John Damon, who supposedly died in the water at a nearby pier of San Pedro. It's also worth noting that shortly after the seance, the investigators would come to find that the man in which the entity said Wheatcraft resembled was Charles Pearson. There's actually no confirmation that Charles Pearson was in fact a murderer, but he was listed as the owner of 593 West 11th Street in the telephone directory from the 1930s. Okay. 
Okay. Now, I don't really understand all this back history investigation myself, because if it was a poltergeist, now correct me if I'm wrong, but a poltergeist isn't a ghost, right? Like a poltergeist never lived in the world as we know it. It's like this ancient elemental spirit thing. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's its whole gig. Right? Like it can kind of shapeshift and take on appearances of things around it or things that inform it, but like it's not actually the spirit of a person that had once lived. Yeah. So this is where it gets really confusing to me, and it almost feels like these investigators are maybe milking this story a little bit too hard, writing books and all that kind of shit. Yeah, I was going to say, I wonder how much money the men who were involved in this investigation have made on it compared to how much money Jackie's made from selling her story. Exactly, and that's the tea. You know what this case needs? Amy fucking Allen. Yes, let's get Amy Allen in on this. She'd be able to figure it out out. If I could turn back time. Right? So, okay. In the end, Jackie Hernandez ended up moving several more times, and with each move, the poltergeist activity decreased until it subsided completely. So I guess, ultimately, Jackie just stopped giving it the energy it needed, and it moved on. She just outran it. Yeah, exactly. She did. Basically. And although the activity has stopped plaguing Jackie Hernandez and her family, the house at 593 West 11th Street has seen many residences come and go. So most notably, many residents describe hearing strange noises coming from the attic, accompanied by an extremely foul odor emanating from the hatch. Ooh, the poo ghost remains. The poo ghost remains. And that is the story of the San Pedro haunting. Shit. Thanks for sharing that. That's creepy as fuck. Yeah, it was a pretty spooky story. I also just want to highlight a few of the places that I got some of this information from. I got this information from Barry Taft's website, also from Barry Conrad's book, but I also got a bulk of this information from the Bedtime Stories YouTube channel. So, thanks Bedtime Stories. Thanks for the Bedtime Stories. Yeah. Alright, so that was my story, and now I guess we are ready to get into your story. I guess so. Well, this week, I'm getting topical. Okay. This is fresh. This hits close to home for us, because it actually happens in our neighborhood. Right. I'm talking about Bruce MacArthur. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Shit. Yeah. So a lot of you have probably been reading about this one, and we were holding off talking about it until a sentencing had happened, just because we didn't want to jump the gun on it. We wanted to be able to present all the facts. Mm -hmm. But, spoiler alert, 
we got that this weekend. Yeah, it happened really fast. I'm not sure if anybody's been following the news, but it was maybe like a week of court hearings and then a sentencing like right away. So for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, Bruce MacArthur is a serial killer who terrorized Toronto's gay village for about 10 years. And let's just say he's a real motherfuckress. So this all starts September 16th, 2010. Skandaraj Navaratnam, who's 40 years old, is reported missing. He was last seen on September 6th of 2010, according to a news release that was put up by the Toronto police. He was last seen leaving Zippers with a Z, which is a bar in Toronto's gay village at the corner of Church and Carleton. It's not there anymore, but he was last seen with an unknown man. He's a Tamil refugee from Sri Lanka, and he has known family members in Canada. Moving forward, December 30th, 2010, Abdul Bazir Fazi, who's 42 years old, is reported missing from the Peel region of Toronto. He works as a machine operator at a printing company in Mississauga, and he was last seen on December 29th of 2010. His car was later found abandoned in Toronto near St. Clair Avenue East and Mount Pleasant Road, so just a little bit north of the gay village. He had last been seen in person at the Black Eagle and then later on at Steamworks. So the Black Eagle is a bar that basically caters to the leather community and Steamworks is a bathhouse. If you're not acquainted with gay bathhouses, let's do Bathhouse 101. So a bathhouse is a facility usually catering to gay men. It usually has a few different services that it offers such as a gym, such as a sauna and a steam room, such as rooms where you can stay for a night or a few hours. Also, fuck slings. Also, dark rooms for hookups. Now, there are lesbian bathhouses, but Steamworks is primarily a gay male bathhouse. The deal is, though, bathhouses also offer a safe space for closeted men who may be closeted because of family pressures or cultural pressures to essentially have a safe space to engage in sexual activities. The deal is, Abdul Bazir Fazi, who went missing on December 30th, was also a closeted gay man. He was not out to his family. So it sounds like he met somebody in this safe space and then disappeared shortly thereafter. Right. Two years later, October 25th, 2012, Majid Kahan, who's 58, is reported missing in Toronto. He's an Afghan immigrant who had come to Canada in the late 80s. He had divorced his wife in 2002 and had come to the realization that he was a gay man. He was not out to his family, though. Now, he was known around the village in the mid-90s. He had a boyfriend who had an apartment there and he would stay at this apartment Unfortunately, his partner died. Now, according to a Toronto Police press release, he was last seen on October 14th, but not reported missing until the 25th. Right. The next month, November of 2012, Toronto Police create Project Houston. So this was a project that was created to investigate the disappearance of these three men. Police say that they end up finding some evidence that Navaratnam had been murdered. Homicide investigators join Project Houston for a little while. Basically, they start following some suggested evidence that Navaratnam had supposedly fallen victim to a cannibal ring. Ultimately, this was discarded, though, and the investigation went on without the homicide squad. Right. Now, what is a cannibal ring? I have no idea. I mean, it sounds like, I guess, kind of like human trafficking for... Yeah. Sounds pretty fucked up. Yeah, like, you know where this goes. So the thing is, though, the police are essentially just like, all right, well, this doesn't really hold any water. They throw it out. And because of this, though, homicide is no longer working with... Project Houston. So from my understanding, they're just kind of looking at these 
as if they're missing persons. Right. Now, from November 2012 until April 2014, Project Houston spends like thousands of hours interviewing witnesses, and then they're also canvassing communities and doing computer and online searches, but ultimately nothing really substantial comes from it. So in April of 2014, Project Houston was closed after 18 months of operation because it fails to generate any evidence. Right. Now, fast forward about a year and a half. August of 2015, Sarush Mahmoodi, who's 50 years old, is reported missing by his family. He's a professional painter, and he was last seen near his home in Scarborough. So for those of you who don't know, Scarborough is a community just outside of Toronto. Now, Sarush Mahmoodi was in the gay scene, but he was not really well known, and he was also not out to his family. He was a recent refugee from Iran. Now, that was August 2015, January of 2016. Karushna Kanagaratnam, who's 37 years old, disappears. He was a Sri Lankan refugee who had come to Canada in August of 2010. He was never officially reported missing to police, but he had lost contact with his family in August of 2015 because basically he had been given a deportation order. So according to sources, he went into hiding in the Tamil community around Toronto. Right. But then disappeared from within that community in January of 2016. But obviously in his case, most people would have just assumed that he went further into hiding. Exactly. And nobody knew that he was visiting the village, all this kind of stuff. So nobody would even be looking for him there. Right. So fast forward a bit to April of 2016. Dean Lissowick, who the media can't really pin down as being either 43 or 44, is seen for the last time checking into the Scott Mission Shelter in Toronto. Now, he never returned. He was never reported missing. But he was last recorded at the mission on April 21st of 2016. He was a former sex worker who had been down on his luck and he'd been dealing with substance abuse issues, but he was working toward being a cleaner and a laborer. He was getting clean and all staff at the mission said that he was a really respectful guy and a really kind person. So it looked like he was starting to take the steps toward his goal, but then just disappeared. Right. Now, June 20th, 2016, a call is placed to 911 in Toronto from a man reporting that someone else named Bruce McCartney Carther had attempted to strangle them in a van during a consensual hookup. Right. Now, MacArthur comes to the police and turns himself in and is arrested for the assault. But shortly thereafter, he's let go without any charges. So he just keeps walking. Shit. April 30th, 2017. Salim Essen, who's 44, he's a Turkish citizen, but he's living in Toronto. He is reported missing. He was last seen on April 14th of 2017, according to a Toronto police news release. But I will say the sightings in April were kind of conjecture. He was definitely last seen on... March 20th, 2017. Now, he had no fixed address, so he was kind of in a bit of a liminal space. He was essentially staying with friends, and he kept all of his belongings in a rolling suitcase. His friends said that he was in an unhealthy relationship, so he just kind of lived this nomadic life. And right. then And then he disappears close to the village in April of 2017. June 29th of 2017, Andrew Kinsman, 49 years old, is reported missing. Now, he's a resident of Cabbage Town in 
Toronto. He was last seen on June 26th, which was the day after Pride in Toronto. Now, Kinsman was the first of the missing people to be open and out. He was a bartender in the village and he was a volunteer with Toronto People with AIDS Foundation. He was also the superintendent of his building. He was really connected within his kind of Cabbage Town community as well as the gay village. Now, because Andrew Kinsman was so connected within his community, Facebook groups started being made talking about his disappearance. Right. The group Toronto's Missing Rainbow Community was created shortly after his disappearance was confirmed, and essentially it was members of the queer community linking the disappearances that had been accumulating in the village along with Andrew Kinsman's. There was another group that had about 600 members that was dedicated just to the investigation of Andrew, but this is kind of the first instance of people really publicly connecting all of these missing people that have kind of popped out of sight within the last eight years or so. Right. Now, at this time, there was an image of 12 people who were all presumed to be gay who had gone missing in the church in Wellesley Village area, and this kind of went viral. Now, I remember seeing this, and people at the time were kind of connecting these 12 people together through a possible serial killer. This was quickly debunked because about five of them were found to be alive and well. Right. Yeah, so they had just gone missing. One of them, unfortunately, had taken their own life. But Kinsman was there, Salim Essen was there, and the three initial men who Project Houston was focused on were also on that list. So with everything else debunked, people still had this grouping of men who had gone missing in the church in Wellesley Village. The interesting thing to note here too, and this is something that you don't read in the articles, but we know this from living in and around the gay village in Toronto. The sad reality is that the public didn't really gather steam on this idea of a serial killer before a white man went missing. Right. But that being said, he also seemed to have more of a presence, more of a openness within the community. So therefore, his absence would be noticed and maybe felt a lot sooner than the other men who were kind of living a closeted life. That is true. He was the first out man to have gone missing. So the next month, on July 28th of 2017, Project Prism is created to investigate the disappearances of Essen and Kinsman. Officers start to work closely with the investigators from Project Houston, though. So they're basically like, tell us everything you know. We're going to investigate these two really hard because they're recent, but it seems like they're starting to accumulate all this information. Now, September of 2017, Bruce MacArthur is identified as somebody who may have had information about the disappearance of Kinsman. Basically, police find out that Andrew Kinsman had had a sexual relationship with this guy named Bruce MacArthur. Right. So police begin surveilling his vehicle and tracking his movements around the city. So we've started to talk about Bruce MacArthur quite a bit. Who is she? Who is she? Let's talk. I haven't been able to be too jokey-jokey during this whole thing because it's pretty fresh, it hits pretty close to home, but if there's one thing I know, it's that I can roast this fucking pig. So buckle up, we at least get to laugh during this motherfucker's bio. Perfect. So, Thomas Donald Bruce MacArthur was born in Lindsay, Ontario on October 8th, 1951. No, he's a Libra. Mm. Uh-uh. Sorry. Now, Babs McGriddle in present days is essentially just described as a jolly looking man he's got white hair he's got a beard he's a straight laced looking guy he's pretty straight passing he basically looks like wilford brimley yeah so i'm gonna say this as a man of size you're a man of size we're in our late 200s this fat bitch was raised on a farm near woodville ontario he grew up near the kawathra lakes to a family that took in foster children so there were two kids 
and there were usually about six to ten children there at all times. Not a bad situation, though. It seems like he had a pretty nice family. Okay. So, 23 years old, Babs McGriddles marries a woman. It's 1974. Later on, they move to Oshawa, just about an hour outside Toronto. This is 1979. They end up having a son and a daughter together. I'm sorry for the wife. I am sorry for the daughter. I am sorry for the son. Very. So, he moves through the 80s. He does his thing. He had been working as a buyer for Eaton's in Toronto, and he started doing that in, like, the mid-70s. So, Eaton's in Toronto at the time is just outside of the gay village, so he was always kind of in the area for work. Right. Yeah, and then around the early 1990s, Bubbles starts having sexual encounters with men in the gay village. Now, this is on the DL for a while. Ultimately, he comes out to his wife. They remain married and living together for some while after, though. And then shit just keeps getting better. So basically, he loses his job at Eden's. In, like, 1993, 1994, they start to have money troubles. By the late 90s, he's separated from his wife. So this is 1997. Brucey moves to Toronto. At that time, they mortgaged the home in Oshawa. He ultimately declares bankruptcy in 1999. They sell the house in 2000, and the records when they sold the house indicate that they're still married. Oh. Yeah, so legally they're married, but they had separated. Right. So while all this is happening, Bruce is just blossoming in the gay scene of Toronto. Like a big shitty flower. Yeah, so the shit Lily himself started dating Skandaraj Navaratnam around that time. So in the late 90s, he was dating the first person who ended up going missing in 2010. Shit. Yeah. Now, they had a relationship together, which supposedly lasted until 2008. During this relationship, though, Bruce ran into a little bit of legal trouble. On Halloween of 2001, he had been arrested for attacking a male sex worker with a metal pipe in the village. What the fuck? Yeah, so it turns out that he had met this male sex worker on a chat line, and they had started hooking up, and basically this guy was invited over to Bruce MacArthur's apartment to see his Halloween costume when he struck him from behind over the head with a metal pipe. Oh my god. Yeah, so this guy wakes up and then calls the cops. Very shortly after, MacArthur turns himself in. He claims that he didn't remember the attack or why he did it, but he holds himself accountable. Fuck off. That's real cute. Oh, I know I did it. I don't remember why. I don't remember how, but yeah, I did it. Yeah, he's just like, oopsie poopsie. So he's given a two-year conditional sentence for it in 2003. He was told that he had to stay away from amyl nitrate, so he wasn't allowed to do poppers anymore. And if you don't know what poppers are they also call it VCR head cleaner essentially it's these little bottles of chemicals that gay men like to sniff you don't want to touch the liquid because it's fucking toxic but essentially when you sniff it you got all loosey-goosey for about 20 minutes and your sphincter relaxes so a lot of guys like to do it before gay sex poppers are illegal now but they weren't then no in 2003 the cops are like Okay, Brucie, two-year conditional sentence, you have to stay away from the paupers, and you're also not allowed to be in the presence of male sex workers. And you also can't go around Toronto's gay village. He had one year of house arrest, and then for the next year, he had an imposed curfew of 10 o'clock. So Baby had a bedtime. He was also charged for carrying a concealed weapon. Motherfucker. So 2003, big bitch Bruce moves into an apartment on Thorncliffe Park on Don Mills Road in 
Toronto. It's about 10 minutes away from the apartment where he was arrested on Thorncliffe Drive. Oh, shit. Yeah, and he was self-employed as a landscaper. So after quitting apparel, he found himself, he started a company called Artistic Design, and he had about 30 properties throughout the greater Toronto area by the time of his arrest that he took care of. Artistic Design. I know, and can you imagine the clip art that was probably on his business card? Ugh, I bet you it was very swirly. Mm-hmm. I bet you it was like... A taupe gradient. Yeah. Yeah, like taupe into gold. Very that italic Times New Roman typeface. The font is a terracotta orange. Yes. Trade trading spaces. Very that. Yeah. Anyway, artistic design is the worst name for a company I could ever imagine. Carry on. So speaking of carrying, Brucey starts to get known within the gay community. So after the heat died down from the whole lead pipe incident, he started to frequent bars in the village again. He started to become known among the queer community again. And he basically had a bit of a Jekyll and Hyde persona. So some people knew him to be like a really jovial guy, like a really sweet dude. People remember having drinks with him, la-di-da. Other people remember him for being a bit of a bouty bitch with a hair-trigger temper. Right. In 2011, a bunch of people witnessed him being asked to leave a coffee house following an incident that he had had with somebody he was there with. And then when he was asked to leave, he knocked over a whole bunch of glass jars and yelled, fucking faggots telling stories about me. You're just like the rest of them. You think I'm crazy. Well, sounds crazy. Yeah, bitch, we know you're crazy. So along with being a drama daddy in the community, he was also all over the hookup apps. Those kind of came a little bit later. It started off on like websites and all that kind of stuff, but he went under the tag Silver Fox Toronto. He was kind of like the silver daddy type, you know, like a big, older, established dude. And on his profiles, he said that he was looking for submissive men of all ages. Now, this is something that the press has really taken and run with, considering the nature of the crimes that we'll talk about later. Mm -hmm. Deal is, though, in a healthy dynamic, a dom looking for a sub of all ages, that's not really a red flag. It doesn't mean you're a killer. No, it's not particularly weird. And essentially, Bruce MacArthur kind of becomes like ingrained in Toronto's gay BDSM community. And he's really known for liking to tie guys up. Again, doesn't mean you're a twisted psychopath, but it ends up coming into play with this dumbass. Deal is, though, if you look at Bruce MacArthur at a glance, he's a pretty unassuming guy. He actually worked part-time as a mall Santa during the holiday season. So if you didn't know about his, like, outbursts or his violent past, he seemed like a pretty docile guy. If you look at his Facebook profile, which was up even after his arrest for a while, like, I remember looking at it, you remember looking at it. Yeah. You see him vacationing and, like, laughing it up, usually with younger men of color, usually from uh, Middle East or South Asian descent. So he was like living a high life and like after his relationship ended in 2008, he was still hooking up with guys in the community, usually younger men. Like I said, he moved into a new apartment. And then by 2014, his record ends up getting wiped clean via record suspension. So Brucey is really just like kind of living the life. Wait, so he just basically got a clean slate and everything he had done before, like attacking a guy with a crowbar was just thrown out? Yeah, they're like, whatever he didn't do poppers. He's a good guy. He's a Santa. He just likes to hook up with his younger friends and go out on boats and live his life. Whatever. Now, the creepy thing as well with this whole mall Santa thing, like, just think about how many people are out there with pictures of their kid and this 
fucking guy. Yeah, that is absolutely bone chilling to think about. Right. So Bruce MacArthur basically got to go under the radar for a while until it was uncovered in September of 2017 that he had been in a relationship on and off with Andrew Kinsman. Now they start to surveil him, like I said before we got into the bio, but the deal is they can only stay so far away. They can't really get in and they can't really potentially collect any evidence until they find out that Bruce had recently taken his Dodge Caravan to an auto parts yard just outside Oshawa. Now they're able to obtain the vehicle. When they go into Bruce MacArthur's old Dodge Caravan, they end up finding Andrew Kinsman's blood. Shit. They also find DNA evidence from Slim Essen. So these are two of the missing men who have DNA inside of this old vehicle. Mm -hmm. So that's October of 2017. The police start to zero in as Bruce MacArthur as the number one suspect of the missing men in Toronto's gay village. By December 4th of 2017, they're able to obtain a general warrant to search Babs McGriddle's apartment and basically clone his computer due to the DNA evidence that had been found in his vehicle. Right. The day after, December 5th, 2017, Project Prism releases a warning for members of the queer community to be alert and watch out for people on hookup apps. Basically, knowing what's going on there, Toronto Police put out this warning to the queer community being like, hey, P.S. Stay safe. December 8th of 2017, three days later, please provide an update on Project Prism to the public. They downplay suggestions that there may be a serial killer in the gay village, though. They essentially respond to all of the conversation that had been going on, and they were like, no, we don't think that there's any conclusive evidence that any of these guys were met with foul play, but they also say that it can't be ruled out. So they're just trying to play it cool in the public eye at this point. Right, but they are a little more privy to what may actually be happening at this point. They're also withholding information. So at this time, people in the queer community of Toronto are actively talking about the potential of a serial killer. They're pointing out that the disappearances are among like a larger tapestry of disappearances that have occurred in the village that have not been dealt with. Part of this conversation also pointed to a number of missing and murdered trans women and sex workers that had gone missing in the Church Wellesley village. And because the queer community doesn't really know about what the Toronto police knows, in the public context everything is still kind of like within one court. Like all these missing and murdered trans women, these missing and murdered gay men. Nobody right. quite knows just yet. But we remember seeing this. People in the queer community started putting out calls of interest for creating a community watch program for the gay village. Yep. So people were talking about creating canvassing and basically doing like rounds of watches as groups to kind of do like a civilian policing of the area. Yeah, to try to make sure that people aren't going off on their own. I remember seeing this and this post went fucking everywhere and there were hundreds of responses and people just kind of coalescing around this feeling that the police weren't doing anything to connect these murders. People were feeling really left out to dry in the situation and the queer community and our greater allies within Toronto were talking about mobilizing and taking care of the problem ourselves. Yeah, because people really were afraid. People were afraid to walk home from work. People were worried about their significant others being out and just going to and from places. Like, they're definitely was a culture of fear 
at the time in which even when we came to Toronto. Yeah, I remember when we moved to Toronto, this whole case was still open and it was when a lot of these conversations were going on. And I remember at the time you were working on the other side of the city and I would get so freaked out if you took longer than usual to come home because so many guys and a lot of them were within the bear community actually Mm -hmm. had gone missing and there was just this prevailing feeling of fear among everyone in the queer community. But while there was fear, there was also a lot of tension between queer people in Toronto and the Toronto police, which we'll get into in just a few minutes. Now, speaking of the police, on January 17th of 2018, police are finally able to do a partial download of Bruce MacArthur's computer. When they go in, they're able to find post-mortem photos of the victims. They're not able to fully identify them yet, but they see these photos of the corpses posed. Some of them were dressed in fur coats. Some of them had cigars in their mouths. It was really morbid shit. Now, as soon as they find this on January 17th, they release instructions to arrest Bruce MacArthur immediately if he is seen alone with anyone. The next day, January 18th, 2018, Babs McGriddles is still under police surveillance when officers notice a young man entering his apartment. Now, for the rest of this, the guy is going to be referred to as John, and he is at all hearing meetings just to give him his anonymity. But basically, they notice this, and then they start putting things into action. By the time they're able to get inside of Bruce MacArthur's apartment, they find John tied up in the bedroom with a black bag over his head, tape on his mouth, but he is unharmed. Wow. Yeah, so they saved his life. Now, the man John had recently moved to Canada from the Middle East about five years ago. Now, we don't know from where, but he had allegedly hooked up with MacArthur in the past. He was a married man who was not out to his family, though. I'm not sure if he was separated or what was going on there. But again, it's this motherfucker preying on people's vulnerability. The police arrest Bruce MacArthur right away. They also immediately seize five cell phones, five computers, three digital cameras, and about a dozen USB flash drives, a lot of which end up containing media connected to the murders. Bruce MacArthur is taken with police, and he is ultimately charged with two counts of first-degree murders in the deaths of Essen and Kinsman. Now, the thing is, he's arrested. There are no remains. Logically speaking, he's a landscaper, so police start to investigate the properties that MacArthur had been taking care of. Right. Because, ultimately, they believe that there are other victims. So January 29th of 2018, MacArthur is charged with three more counts of first-degree murder in the deaths of Kahan, Mahmoudi, and Lisowick. When the charges are laid, the police reveal that they were able to find the remains of these three men on planters at a leaside home that Bruce MacArthur had worked on. So they basically went in there, and there were these huge, you know, planters full of soil, and when they brought cadaver dogs to the property, they automatically went to those planters. Right. In those, they found the remains of those men. They end up seizing over a dozen large planters from the property. Now, about a week later, on February 8th of 2018, police go on to identify the remains of Andrew Kinsman, found on planters located on a Mallory Crescent home where MacArthur had worked. They were able to identify Kinsman through his fingerprints. Now, this is February, so to go any further, the police had to heat up the ground and then excavate. They essentially look through the earth in the backyard of the Mallory Crescent home that MacArthur had worked at, but they could only go so far. So they stopped the operation for a while, and they say that they may come back when the weather is warmer. Later in that month, February 23rd of 2018, Bruce MacArthur is charged with his sixth count of first-degree murder in the death of Navaratnam. After 
the police confirmed that they found his remains through dental records, which was also how they were able to identify the body of Mahmoudi. March 5th, 2018, police release a photo of a dead, unidentified man who they believe to be the seventh victim of Bruce MacArthur. The photo that they ended up releasing was a close-up of a corpse with black hair, dark skin, and a beard. They announced that the seventh set of remains had been uncovered in one of the Mallory Crescent planters, and the outstanding sets of remains that they have found are going through further DNA testing. Remember how I said that they collected a whole bunch of, like, cameras, computers, and thumb drives from Bruce MacArthur's apartment? Right. When they look on a bunch of these storage devices, they end up finding not only photos of corpses, but also photos of live men who are kind of, like, having some bondage moments. So Bruce really loved boudoir photography. Right. Now, one of those men came public. His name is Sean Cribben, and basically he says that he was contacted by Toronto police during the discovery of all of these remains, asking him if he could confirm whether or not he knew Bruce MacArthur. So the police are like, hey, do you know Bruce MacArthur? He's like, yeah, we hooked up. Police are like, do you remember a camera being in the room? Right. Sean Cribben's like, no, I don't remember a camera being in the room. Deal is, though, Babs McGriddles had been getting photos of her hookups with people they were unaware. Right, so no consent involved. Definitely no consent, because when police ask Sean Cribben to explain his interactions with Bruce MacArthur, he recalls that it was the scariest date he had ever had. He met with Bruce, ended up going to Bruce's apartment. Bruce didn't just want to go in the front door. He essentially created this convoluted route that Sean looks back and says, oh yeah, he basically led me in the back door so that he wasn't coming by all the cameras. Right. Mm-hmm. He gets up to Bruce's apartment. Bruce gives him what Sean describes as a cocktail, what he later figures out is containing GHB, which is essentially a party drug that's really popular among the gays. Deal is, a little bit takes you to the disco. Too much puts you out like a light. Right. So he roofied him. Everything after that becomes a little bit blurry, but basically Sean remembers being scared for his life, not being able to breathe because, as he said, MacArthur was raping his throat so hard. And while he doesn't remember every detail of the event, he remembers being severely out of air and being close to death, or as he describes, being in a kill position until he's interrupted by Bruce MacArthur's roommate coming home. So, oh. yeah, MacArthur wasn't expecting his roommate to be home that night. That was kind of part of the deal. Like, hey, come over. Roomie's not here. But the roommate shows up early, interrupts the whole deal, and the guy ends up being able to walk away relatively unscathed, but pretty scarred by the whole ordeal. Yeah, I'd say. Now, other men were contacted, but Sean Cribben was the only one that really kind of came public and did an interview about it. Now, this is March 2018. Like I mentioned before, there is a lot of conversation going on about how the queer community didn't feel that the police was properly invested investigating these crimes as they were happening, as well as other crimes that were going on in Toronto's queer community. Now, March 22nd of 2018, the Toronto Police Board ends up announcing as a reaction to this that they're going to be doing an external review of how Toronto Police handles missing persons cases. So the police were commissioning this investigation? Yeah, the higher-ups, basically. People were telling them that they were unhappy with how the police were handling the MacArthur investigation from the very beginning. Now, the thing is, this review starts to go on, but they're not able to look at the police interactions directly involving the MacArthur case because it is an active investigation and trial. Right. 
but it's still going underway with other cases that have affected the queer community and beyond. Right, like maybe some of the missing trans women. Now, shortly thereafter, on April 2nd of 2018, Pride Toronto asks Toronto Police to withdraw their application from the march in that year's Pride Parade, citing that the fractured relationship between police and the queer community cannot be mended through a parade. They said that it was an incredibly difficult and complex time. Right. Now, this was partially because of the MacArthur investigation, but police had also been under fire for the recent handlings of the deaths of Tessa Ritchie, who was 22. She had been found by her mother on November 29th of 2017 in the village after missing for four days, and Allura Wells, who was a 27-year-old trans woman who unfortunately was homeless at the time, and her body was found in a Rosedale ravine in August of 2017. Now, from what I remember at the time, there was a lot of murmurs throughout the queer community that people knew information about Alora Wells that had been attempted to be passed on to Toronto police, but they seem to have more or less turned a blind eye to this. Right. Now, here's the tea. We've been pussyfooting around it for a little bit, but I'm just going to be blunt. The relationship between Toronto police and the Toronto queer community has been broken for a long fucking time. So one of the first big instances of Toronto police fucking with the queers was on December 30th of 1977 when five morality police officers raided the body politic, which was like a gay publication in Toronto. Shortly after, in December of 1978, Toronto police began raiding bathhouses in the gay village. In a March 1979 edition of the Metropolitan Toronto Police Association newsletter, Sergeant Staff Tom McClare's essay, The Homosexual Fad, portrayed gay men as arrogant, militant deviants who recruited innocent children into their lifestyle. Oh my god. Yeah, so there was a lot of queer fear-mongering that was kind of par for the course within Toronto Police, and this was systematically enforced. February 5th of 1981, Project Soap happens. So Project Soap, a lot of people refer to kind of as Toronto Stonewall. So on February 5th of 1981, four bathhouses in Toronto's gay village are raided by 200 police officers. 286 men were charged and fined for being in a brothel. They also arrested women, but I wasn't able to find the numbers. But from my understanding, they also busted one lesbian bathhouse at least. Now remember, these are spaces where the lights are off, there are steam rooms, there are men hooking up, there are people in vulnerable situations. The police stormed the bars with crowbars, they ripped open the lockers, they went through people's belongings, they rounded everybody up. The police basically had these naked men lined up in the showers, and a bunch of people remember hearing this one officer just walking along the naked gay men that they were rounding up, and he said that he wished gas was hooked up to the showers, because that's what they deserved. What the So they basically tried to link all of this to sex work. They tried to say that all of these guys were getting paid to fuck. Ultimately, there were no incidents of sex work happening. They didn't have any evidence of anything. And most of these guys ultimately got let off of charges. Right. But deal is, though, as this is happening, they are humiliated. They are arrested. They are dehumanized. Their names are published. Right. The night after February 
6 of 1981, a midnight march starts at the corners of Young and Wellesley Streets, and about 3,000 people marched down toward the Division 52 police station on Dundas Street. Now, they were protesting the police brutality that had occurred the night before, and by the time that they got down to the police station on Dundas Street, they were met by over 200 police officers. Only 11 people were arrested, though. After this, there were more focused raids by Toronto police on gay bathhouses, gay and lesbian strip clubs, and nightclubs in the area. So Operation Soap happened in February of 1981. Other notable bathhouse raids in Toronto include June of 1981, April of 1983, February of 1996, and September of 2000. Now in June of 2016, Toronto police finally publicly apologized for the bathhouse raids of 1981, and shortly thereafter, in July of 2016, during the Toronto Pride Parade, Black Lives Matter Toronto stopped the parade for about 30 minutes. They did a sit-in. And when they did this, they essentially brought forward a list of demands toward Toronto Pride that they wanted heard and realized. They also had requests made out to the police as well as other people. But part of the request made to Pride Toronto by Black Lives Matter Toronto was to remove police presence marching in the parade. And if you think about it, this totally makes sense. Last week, we talked about how the first Pride parades were to commemorate the Stonewall riots. Yeah. Toronto's Pride parades essentially started as a reaction to Operation Soap. Pride is political. Pride was born out of fighting back against police oppression. And while I'm not coming for any LGBTQ police people, I completely agree that the optics of police marching in a Pride parade is fucked up. Now, there were a whole bunch of other requests that Black Lives Matter had made. I don't want to minimize that. There's a lot of discussion about queer people of color being represented within the institution of Pride Toronto itself. There's also a lot of conversation about where money was going toward events that catered people of color at Pride. So there is a greater conversation happening there. So that's July of 2016. Wouldn't you think this is a great moment for Toronto police to maybe try to mend their relationship with the queer community? You think? Yeah because we've had this sit-in at Pride, and which, by the way, we stand with Black Lives Matter Toronto. Yes. I find it absolutely disgusting that after this happened, a whole bunch of our queer elders were coming out and calling them terrorists and shit like that. Check your privilege. You don't have the fucking right. Yeah. Regardless, this could be a moment of growth for Toronto police. No, no, no. Fall 2016, the Toronto police decided to launch Project Marie, which was a six-week-long sting operation focused on Etobicoke's Marie Curtis Park. This was a common cruising spot for gay men. So we were talking about before, cruising spots, people hooking up in public areas. I'm not saying legally it's right, but again, it's a part of the culture, and hey, maybe this could be a moment for education. Maybe this could be a moment for police to intercept people that are having these interactions and say, hey, let's talk about education and other options. Yep. No, they went undercover as men soliciting sex in these cruising spots, and they ended up busting 72 people with 89 offenses between them. Yeah, I remember hearing about this, and basically, from what it sounded like, these men were basically 
baited by the police into committing these crimes. Exactly. They were entrapping them. And that's in like October, November of 2016. January of 2017, footage is released. And again, we remember seeing this of a Toronto police officer. And I'm going to name his fucking name, Eduardo Miranda, who tasered a man who was handcuffed. Do you remember this? The guy was laying down. He was handcuffed. He had already been apprehended. He was not being violent. This officer tased the guy six fucking times. And then in the video, you hear this bowdy bitch, Eduardo Miranda, shout to another officer not to get too close to the handcuffed man because he's going to spit on you and you might get AIDS. Fuck that guy. Because he presumed that he was a gay man and he presumed that he had AIDS. And this got caught on cell phone footage and this went all around the city, baby. That being said, those are a few incidents. There is a laundry list of other ones that I haven't even identified, including a bunch of cold case murders that happened in the gay village between the 70s and the 90s, where men were tied up and murdered in a similar fashion to Bruce MacArthur, which aren't linked to Bruce MacArthur, but have gone unsolved. Mm -hmm. We talked about police indifference last week with the handcuff man, and this is alive and fucking well in this case. And when you stand back and you look at it, when we talk about the tensions between the queer community and Toronto police, it's because it is the backdrop behind this entire fucking case. So back to Babs. April 11th of 2018, Babs McGriddles ends up getting charged with the first degree murder in the death of Faizi. His remains were also found in the Mallory Crescent planters. On April 16th of 2018, police identified the deceased man in the photograph previously as Karishna Kumar Kanagaratnam, and they charged Bruce MacArthur with first degree murder. The next month in May of 2018, police end up completing their four month long investigation of Bruce MacArthur's apartment, in which they ended up seizing about 1,800 exhibits, including a bag of the victim's body hair that Babs McGriddles had fucking shaved off of them. No! They also took over 18,000 photos of the scene. It was officially the largest forensic investigation in Toronto history. That's fucking crazy. Yeah. June of 2018, the Ontario Court of Appeal Justice Gloria Epstein ends up being named to lead an independent review of how the Toronto police review missing persons cases. She ended up wanting to see if the disappearances were tainted by systematic bias or discrimination. Right. So this continues to pick up steam. So the next month in July of 2018, police returned to the Mallory Crescent home for one more time. They end up doing a nine-day excavation of the compost pile in a forest part of the ravine behind the home. This is the area that they left previously because it was too cold to excavate in February. Right. They end up finding remains every day of the nine-day excavation. Shit. They end up being identified as belonging to Kahan. He is the final victim to have remains recovered, and police end up saying at a press conference shortly thereafter that there is no further evidence of victims in the Bruce MacArthur case or any more remains to potentially be found. Right. Now, later that month, on October 22nd of 2018, Bruce MacArthur ends up waiving his right to a preliminary legal hearing, sending the case straight to trial. Basically, he was like, no, bitch, I'm not wasting time with this. Put me in the hot seat. Now, throughout the months of October and November, the remains end up getting released back to the families of the victims for memorial services, finally. So a lot of these men ended up being able to finally be put to rest 
by their families. On November 30th of 2018, Superior Court Judge John McMahon sets January 6, 2020 as the date for the trial to begin against Bruce MacArthur. Oh, really? Now, fast forward about two months. January 28, 2019. Toronto police end up announcing that Bruce MacArthur will be in court on January 29th. And they say that when he's in court the next day, there will be a significant development in the case. So the next day, January 29th of 2019, Bruce MacArthur ends up pleading guilty in court to the first-degree murders of the eight missing men from the gay village. This essentially avoids the January 2020 trial and fast tracks everything. They schedule sentencing for the next week. On January 30th of 2019, the next day, Justice Gloria Epstein from the Toronto Court of Appeal officially asks to include cases involving Bruce MacArthur as part of her independent review of how Toronto police have potentially mishandled investigations of missing and murdered people. Right. So that finally starts to be able to be put into the fold and that investigation continues to go forward. Oh, wow. Shortly thereafter, on February 1st of 2019, 2019, Toronto police announced that Sergeant Paul Gautier will appear before a police tribunal to be charged with neglect of duty and insubordination dating back to 2016 in an incident where MacArthur had been arrested but not charged for a choking incident. Whoa. Yeah, so with all of this shit going on, MacArthur was called in for choking a guy out, and this police officer just completely mishandled it, never followed up in the proper way, and never folded it into the larger kind of grouping of things going on at the time. Which is like such a big deal because literally lives could have been saved. Exactly. If it had have been handled correctly. That's what people have been saying the whole fucking time. If Toronto police just had put their bias and their bullshit aside and handled this with some legitimacy and all tea all shade, handled cases of missing and murdered queer and especially trans people with the legitimacy that they deserve, there could be a lot of harm prevention done. February 4th of 2019, sentencing begins in the Bruce MacArthur case. The Crown reads aloud an agreed statement that details the, quote, planned and deliberate killing of all of the eight men by Bruce MacArthur. Right. At that time, they also release that the two pieces of evidence that ended up cracking the Bruce MacArthur case were a note recovered from Kinsman's calendar that connected him to Bruce MacArthur, and then some grainy security footage that they were able to secure of Andrew Kinsman getting into Bruce MacArthur's van. Shit. So police reveal that that is how he became a definite person of interest, having been the last person to really have seen Andrew Kinsman alive. Right. Now, over the days of February 4th and February 5th of 2019, family and friends of the victims get to read aloud their victim impact statements in court to Bruce MacArthur. They talk about the pain that they've all suffered. They talk about the loss that he has caused in their lives. They basically get to tell him to his face how much of an absolute piece of shit he is. Deserved. Exactly. And from there, it's requested that Bruce MacArthur serves consecutive life sentences for each murder that he committed with no chance for up to 50 years. Now, the deal is on February 8th of 2019, at the time of this recording, just this past Friday, a Superior Court Judge, John McMahon, sentenced Bruce MacArthur for the eight counts of first degree murder. He is to serve his life sentences concurrently, and he will be eligible for parole after 25 years. 
it was taken down from 50 to 25 years by the judge to set an example for future offenders that if they plead guilty outright and save the families of the victims a lengthy trial process and all that trauma, that they will be rewarded with a shorter waiting time for parole hearings. Deal is, though, in 25 years, Bruce MacArthur will be 91 years old. Oh, bitch better be dead. So Babs McGriddles is going away for the rest of his fucking life. Everybody is a lot damn happier because of it, but that's the story of Bruce MacArthur. He's a motherfucker. He completely terrorized the gay village of Toronto for many, many years. He systematically targeted men who were in vulnerable positions. Most of them were people of color who felt that they could not come out to their families. He knew that many of them were experiencing their sexuality in secrecy, and he knew that some of these men also didn't have fixed addresses. He preyed on their vulnerability in a really shitty way, and I'm so fucking glad that they were able to find him. Police will still continue to look into Bruce MacArthur as a possible suspect in other disappearances that have occurred in the village, but for right now, in terms of the eight victims that we know, there's finally some closure to this case. And hopefully Bruce MacArthur will go the way of Rotario and get shanked in prison and die, bitch. Yeah, bye, bitch. Don't let the cell door hit you on the way out. So, I guess with that being said, we're finally at that point in the show. Your favorite part. Tyler, what did you learn today? So, this week was a pretty heavy week, and I guess I just wanted to take the time to once again recognize that these murders are still super fresh. People are still processing, people are still grieving, but I do want to take the time as well to thank the queer community for looking out for each other. You know, let's like do that more so that shit like this stops happening to the most vulnerable people in our communities. Yeah, that's very true. Well, I would say that this week I learned you don't have to be happy. Don't let some parapsychologist tell you that you need to change your mood just because he thinks a poltergeist is feeding on your negativity. You don't have to smile. I learned that in the 90s, thank you very much. I remember the day that I learned that Posh Spice didn't like to smile in photos, and I was like, great, finally have a reason not to do that shit anymore. Right. And I very vividly remember the next day being in a music class. We had a substitute teacher, and she singled me out. She was like, what's wrong with you? You look so mad. Do you think you're cool or something? And I don't really remember what I said to her, but I do remember in my head basically being like, you know what, asshole? I I fucking do. I am cool. And if you got a problem with that, you can take your uncool ass to some other party. Thank you very much. So take that and run with it. Just because some bitch is trying to tell you to smile, you don't have to do it. No, you don't. Let your frown be your umbrella. Excellent point. Thank you. So... Thank you, everybody, for joining us this week. We love you so much. Did you know that? So much. Like, not even in the creepy way. So if you're loving the show, you can rate us and review us wherever you're listening to it. If you're on Apple Podcasts, it's super helpful for you to leave us a five-star rating as well as a written review. It lets them know we're doing it right. Yes. And if you want some more spooky gay bullshit, 
You should follow us on Instagram at that spooky pod. We also make episode posts every week with visual content to support what you are hearing. Yeah, and we've got memes for days. You can also check us out on Twitter at that spooky pod. That's T H A T S S P O O K Y P O D. And as always, you can go to that's spooky.com to get links to all of our podcast players and our social media and you can listen to the episodes there as well and if you have a spooky story yourself or you just have something you need to let us know do you know a secret society that doesn't suck do you know of a crazy haunted object have you ever just felt scared before email us at that spooky at gmail.com spelled just like it is in the instagram and the twitter and so i guess that wraps it up for this week thanks for listening everybody yeah you're perfect you're just like one of those people that can just pull off stirrup pants you know what i mean that's a rare breed that's a rare breed and that's a look thanks everybody until next time kissy kisses and don't forget if you're gonna be a bitch be a spooky bitch bye next week i just want to find something that's like light and stupid and spooky right ghost puppy pool party Hey, Prime members, you can listen to That Spooky early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. The wait is over. So far, you're not losing. The only thing you're losing is my patience. Quickly, I see that. Bing! The queen of the courtroom is back. I didn't do anything. You wouldn't know the truth if it came up and slapped you in the face. I see he's not intimidated by anything. I can fix that. New cases. She wanted to fight me. Leave her alone. Okay, so, um... Not, this is not a so. This is a period. Classic Judy. Did you sleep with her? Yes, Your Honor. You married his cousin. His brother. That's not him. Yes, ma'am. I would make a beeline for the door. The Emmy Award-winning series returns. How did I know that? I have crystal ball in my head. It's an all-new season. It's streaming. You can say anything. (laughs) Judy Justice, only on Freebie.